Oh, another terrifying moment. <laughs> we don't do this very often, but we have a special event today. One of our stalwart, foundational, wonderful members is turning 95 today. Well, that's pretty good, too. <laughs> 92. And I'm going to say something I hope somebody will say to me someday. Happy 92nd birthday. Please stand up. <laughs> Joe Stein. Let's give Joe a... Joe and Joyce have been so faithful in our missions program and in so many other ways to this uh, church, and uh, what a wonderful heart for God and heart for ministry and heart for people these folks have. And I hope when I'm 92, I'm as good-looking as you are. <laughs> Jeanette and I were watching a movie. Of, it was a Paul Newman. And I said, I hope that I look that good when I'm that age. And Jeanette said, I wish you looked that good now. <laughs> <laughs> So she got over the black eye pretty soon, and all was good. We've been talking last week about the value of a name, the value of a name. And that was to introduce a series of names that we recognize, names from the Old Testament, names that we hear, but we may not know who these people are. And like we talk about Joe Stein and, and Joyce Stein being a, a, a people who have contributed so much and and to know them and to know their life story and to, to know their background helps us appreciate God's participation in a human life. And so we can hear the name Abraham, as we, we do. We know the name Abraham, the name Jacob, uh, Moses, Joseph. We want to unpack those names for you in the next few weeks so that as you hear those names, they, they mean something to you. And this, I was telling uh, Brad Smith and I are having lunch on Friday, and I told him what we were doing in this series, and he said, well, speaking about these old men must be very easy for you, being one yourself. So <laughs> I put a little poison in his tea. <laughs> Abraham is one of the most known characters in Scripture. He's from Genesis to Revelation. His name keeps showing up over and over and over again. He is the father of three, the three great religions on the planet Earth today. I shouldn't say the three, three of the great religions. Judaism, obviously, Christianity, and Islam. All look to this man, Abraham, as the founder of what they believe and how they worship. He's the father of two great nations, the Israel and the Arab nations. And so his, his historical, secular reality is, is huge. And, and uh, as I said, he's referenced throughout the Bible, but the most consistent references to Abraham, the most consistent thing that's said about Abraham is about his faith, his active faith. The fact that Abraham believed God and acted on what he believed. If we have anything to learn from this great man, Abraham, that's what we may, must, uh, must learn, what we must model from him. 
Uh, James summarized it about as well as anybody. James wrote in James chapter 2, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Wow. Wow. You see, James wrote that a person is considered righteous by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, as I worked this week, and it was a tough week working with this information, there's an enormous amount of information in the Bible about Abraham. In fact, a few years ago, our Daily Bread University, uh, online university, asked me if I would write a course on Old Testament characters. And I started and stopped. I, had, I, I was befuddled with this guy, Abraham. And, and so I, I've been picking away at it here for a while, and I think this week in preparing this sermon, helped me get a focus. Because in looking at all of this enormous amount of information, I focused on the description of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. Many of you are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. It's called God's, God's Hall of Faith. We think of the Hall of Fame in our world. We, we are, are famous people, are, are athletes and politicians and, and uh, many uh, cultures. They're soldiers. But for Israel, the heroes, their Hall of Fame was about people who walked with God. People who had great faith. And so this whole chapter deals with this concept of faith. And uh, so as we talk about Abraham and this amazing uh, fact that he was a man of faith, we ask, well, what is faith? If we're going to understand Abraham, we have to understand faith. And so this chapter, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews opens with a description of faith. Very simple. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for, and it's assurance about what we do not see. This, this is what the ancients were commended for, for their faith. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So faith is broken down here in this first uh, verses of chapter 11 into a couple of different concepts. First, faith is confidence in what we hope for. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. And when we come back and look at Abraham, we see that his life was lived not for the moment, but for what the promises that God had given him, the future. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, by grace we are saved through faith. Hmm. Well, that really kicks in big time in the future. I put my faith in Jesus that he forgave my sins, and I have a new life. So it's already at work in my life, but the great hope is the return of Christ. The great hope is that when we pass from this life, we pass into a much better place. By faith, we believe all that. By faith, we look to the future. Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope 
to which God has called you. It's that, that what keeps us moving forward, what keeps our, our stable life going is this realization that we belong to God, that our sins are forgiven, that our eternal hope is that we will be with God forever. That's a future hope. Faith is a confidence in what we hope for. It's the confidence, and it's the assurance of what we do not see. So not only does it have that future component, it has a present component. It helps us say, do I really believe in angels and demons? Do I really believe that the Holy Spirit is here? I don't see that. Do I really believe in Ephesians 6 that there are powers of evil? That Satan has demons? All that stuff sounds really weird, doesn't it? I've never seen any of that stuff. By faith, we believe. I don't have faith that this pulpit's here. I can see it. But do I believe with equal conviction that the Holy Spirit of God is in this place. That I believe that this pulpit is here in front of me. Faith is the confidence of what we hope for. It's the assurance of what we do not see. A.B. Bruce wrote about this. Physical eyesight produces conviction or evidence of visible things. Faith is the organ which enables people to see the invisible order. By faith, I see the presence of God in this place and in my life. And by prayer and meditation and time in the scriptures and time in fellowship with other believers, over time, my awareness of the presence of God becomes as real as my awareness of this pulpit. That's what the ancients were commended for. Abraham believed every bit as much in the presence of God as he believed in the presence of his beloved wife, Sarah. He couldn't see God. He could see her. By faith, Abraham lived his life. It's the assurance of... There's a beautiful picture in, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, the Israel was at war with the Arameans. And the Aramean king, Ben-Hadad, every time he would get a, a plot going, Israel would outsmart him. They would outflank him. And he said, we've got a squealer in our midst. Somebody's telling that king of Israel what our plans are. And his priest, his advisor said, no, no, it's, we don't have a rat in our camp. It's that prophet Elisha. God tells him what we're doing. It's like he's in your bedroom at night listening to everything you say. So Ben-Hadad said, we got to get rid of that guy. So Elisha and his assistant were in the city of Dothan, an Israeli city. And the uh, servant got up early in the morning and went out and looked, and he came running back in and said to Elisha, man, you ain't going to believe this. There's a whole army with chariots, and they're out there. They're going to get us. We're dead meat. Elisha prayed, Lord, let my servant see what I see. 
And for a moment, God took the blinders off his servant's eyes, and inside the circle of the Aramean army was an army of chariots and soldiers of fire. God had surrounded them. And so Elisha saw the capital R reality behind the small r reality. And by faith, we live both in the small r reality, but faith enables us. It's the assurance about what we do not see. Then the third thing the, uh, these verses say about faith is this is what the ancients were commended for. Not the heroism, but their faith. Not how strong they were, but how strong they believed God is. Not what they were able to do, or not what they were not able to do, but what God was able to do. And then the fourth thing he said about, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That God created this, God spoke this into existence. You say, man, I don't understand that. Nobody does. With this, this thing in here is limited. By faith, we can begin to get our, our mind around these things that otherwise would be impossible. To believe in the miracle of the resurrection, that doesn't make sense. To believe that God could part the Red Sea, that befuddles people. People can't get their head around that. The fact that the God who created nature can act on it in ways other than its normal process should not surprise anyone. We understand these incredible things. We can believe them. We can accept them. We can doubt them and wrestle and come back and pray our way through them by faith. And that's what he said about Abraham. Hebrews 11 records three specific instances of Abraham and Sarah's faith. Their confidence in what they hoped for. It records their assurance in what they did not see. It was the attribute in their life that they were commended for and made God's friends for. It was the capacity to understand what they would otherwise not be able to comprehend. Faith. They had faith. Well, he gives us three illustrations of that. First, if you have your Bible in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the first instance of the faith that, uh, that the writer of Hebrews tells us about is recorded in verses 8 through 10. Listen to this. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were there, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations. So the first act of faith, we read in Genesis, end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. God said to Abraham, I want you to leave Ur this sophisticated uh, urban place. I want you to leave. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave what's secure, what you believe in, what your traditions tell you. I want you to leave and go 
to a place I will show you. Abraham said, you got a map? He said, I'll show you. Follow me. Follow me. And Abraham went, and when he got to Canaan, God said, now, here's the deal, Abraham. I'm going to give this land to you and to your ancestors forever. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. And your descendants, you'll have so many descendants that it'd be like trying to count the dust of the earth or the sand by the seashore or the stars in the sky. Innumerable. You and Sarah, from your family, will come so many people that they can't be counted. And these people will live on this land that I've called you to. And I will bless your people. They will be special to me. And I will bless those who bless them. And I will curse those who curse them. And here's the big one, Abraham. One day I will bless the whole world. Your family and every family on the earth will be blessed by one of your descendants. And of course we know that descendant, and we just celebrated him as Jesus Christ. Introduced in Matthew as Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But you know, Abraham never owned any land. In fact, his descendants were kicked out of that, not kicked out, they left that land for 400 years. And under Joshua, they came back in and claimed it. But Abraham's whole Faith at that time was faced, focused on something future. Something that he never claimed, but he never lost faith. Just like many of us will live our life enjoying God's rich blessings. Eternal life begins now, but the ultimate prize of eternal life is what Willie shared this week. Standing in God's presence. Why do I believe that when this life is over, my last breath will be here, my next breath will be heavenly air? Do I believe that? Why? By faith. By faith. Faith for the future. Second, he said... uh, uh, talked about this heir, the whole promise to Abraham. Chapter 12, it's a promise. Chapter 15 and chapter 17, God turned it into a covenant, making a very secure, strong promise, covenant with Abraham that these promises he made him of the land and the heirs and the blessing. God said, I am so serious about this that I'm going to put my name on the line. I will never back off from these promises that I have made you. And the next thing he said, the next part of, the, uh, of the Abraham's faith is about the heir. Because none of these promises, these whole come, nothing would work without an heir. And Abraham and Sarah had been living. They were, Abraham was 85 and Sarah was 75. They still didn't have any kids. And they're both saying, you know, the clock is ticking here, God. <laughs> You're timeless. We ain't. 
and this kid business. What's going on with that? And so in verse 11 of chapter of, of, of uh, Hebrews 11, by faith, Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she had considered him faithful who had made the promise. And from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. So here's another element of faith. The first element is looking to the future. This second kind of faith that Abraham and Sarah exercised was faith in the time of confusion. Faith in the time of what should we do now? God had promised them a child, but here they, 10 years they've been living in the land, 10 years after the God gave them the promise. They're getting older. They said, should we do something? I mean, is God expecting us to fulfill this promise? Well, they decided that was the case. And so Sarah came to Abraham and said, hey, uh, I got a plan. I have this handmaiden. And by the laws of Hammurabi, the, 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 the laws of the land, it's legal for you to have a child with her since I'm barren, and that child then becomes ours. That's a custom. Spiritually, it's a custom. Four of Jacob's children, who were named heads of the tribe, four of the tribes of Israel, were not children of his wives, but of their handmaidens. So this was, not a, 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 this was perfectly legal. And so they were saying, this, we have faith, but does faith mean we should do something, or does faith mean we should just wait and, and let God do his thing? Some of you have been there. I've been there. And well, Lord, you're not doing anything, so, so maybe I should. And that's what, that's what they did. Uh, should we let God help, or should we help? Now, there, I, I have an interesting situation. I was reading about George Mueller. Anybody here, George Mueller was a great man. He built orphanages, George and Mary Mueller. And by May 26, 1870, Mueller had 1,722 children in his five orphan homes. Through all this, Mueller never made requests for financial support, nor did he go into debt. Though he built five homes that cost him more than 100,000 pounds, this was in England back in 1800s, many times he received unsolicited food donations only hours before they were needed to feed the children, further strengthening his faith in God. Mueller was in constant prayer before God touched the hearts of donors to make provisions for the orphans. There was one morning they thanked the Lord for breakfast. There was no food in the house. There was a knock on the door, and the local baker brought bread. Then there was another knock on the door, and the milk wagon had broken down in front of the orphanage, and the milk guy said, i got to get rid of this milk. Do you want it? Many, many stories like that. Never asked for money, but he had plenty of money. Now, yesterday, I was at a fundraiser for Mama's house, and they raised a lot of money. In fact, Floyd, our dear Floyd Rhodes, was instrumental in putting that together. So who's more spiritual? Floyd or George Mueller? What's the right way to go? We had a stewardship campaign up here talking about money for a long time. 
Well, I get comfort in the fact that First and Second Corinthians were fundraising letters written by the Apostle Paul. So I kind of think it's okay. But how do we know? How do we know when we should act, and how do we know when we should let God act? God said to Gideon, I want you to reduce your army to 300 and go after the, uh, the, uh, the invading army with only 300 soldiers because I want everybody to know you didn't do this, I did this. He told David and Solomon, raise an army because you've got enemies coming. So which is right? How do we know? This is a life of, life of deep faith. It says, Lord, I have to come to you every day and ask you, should I do this or should I wait for you to do this? By faith, I pray that God gives the answer. I had a, <coughs> back in the 80s, when I was in Austin, Texas, I had a friend in the Irian Jaya, missionary, Leon Dillinger, and he was doing some translation work, and he sent me a telex, Say this would be four phones and all iPhones. And so he sent a telex saying, I need money to get this computer and this program and all this stuff and back enormously expensive. So he said, Would you guys pray for that at your church? Because we were supporting him. So I was meeting with three of the elders that morning, and and uh, so we got together, and, and uh, one of the elders was Al Bowerly, who's a commercial real estate dealer, one of the biggest commercial real estate dealers in uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, Joe McElhaney had a very successful gynecological practice with many gynecologists working with him there. And uh, Jim Saxton was chairman, CEO of Texas Commerce Bank. Heavy hitters financially. And I was making a decent salary. So we got together and I said, hey guys, I got this telex from Leon. He needs some money. We need to pray about that. So Al prayed, oh Lord, raise this money. Yeah, it was great. Joe went over, oh Lord. Give Leon this money. Help us raise this money. Jim started to pray, oh, Lord, I pray that Leon, I said, hold it, hold it. Which one of you guys is going to write that check? <laughs> Al said, I got it. I say, okay, now let's go and pray for stuff we need to pray for. I'm thinking, why are we praying about this? This is lunch money for these guys. So sometimes God says, just do it. People say, oh, Lord, let my neighbor hear the gospel. Pray that my neighbor will accept Jesus. Well, get off your butt and go tell him about Jesus. <laughs> the guy praying, oh, Lord, let me win the lottery. Please, Lord, let me win. The I'll even tithe to the missionaries. He did this for weeks. Finally, a voice from heaven came. Buy a lottery, stupid. <laughs> Buy a lottery ticket, you moron. You know, so sometimes God says, wait. Sometimes God says, Go do it. And this was Sarah and Abraham's dilemma. It's easy to judge them, say they shouldn't have done that. That's where the Arab nations came from. And here we are, 21st century, the Jews and the Arabs are still battling it out. Is that a mistake? Are we going to fault them for that? I've been there, wrestling with those decisions. But faith says, I pray that God will give me the wisdom to know when I should act and when I should not act. And then Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 is, this is a weird one. This is a kind of faith when what God 
or we sense what God wants us to do, or we read something in the Bible, and we say, that makes no sense whatsoever. It's recorded in Genesis 22, so uh, it's, it's here in uh, verses 17 through 19 of Hebrews, but I want to read it from Genesis 22, where God actually gave this to uh, Abraham. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. I'm going to give you a tough one here, Abraham. I want to see if you're the real deal. He said to him, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. Then God said, today, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, the son of the covenant, the son through whom all of these promises and all of these points of the covenant Depend. I want you to take him and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Abraham said, excuse me? You run that by me again? I mean, this is the kid of the covenant. (laughs) This is the kid we waited all those years for. 25 years we prayed and waited. You'd give us a, a son and now you want me to do this horrendous thing? Uh, and you better tell Sarah, <laughs> not me. I'm not going to tell her this. It's her son too. Absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. The text goes on. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took Isaac, and headed for Moriah. Abraham obeyed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We read things, some things, it's not as dramatic as sacrificing one of our kids, although I must confess there were times when I thought it was a good idea. (laughs) Glad I didn't, but there were moments. But that's pretty dramatic. But I I think when God says, you've got to forgive that person who just said that terrible thing about you. That person who cleaned out your bank account. You've got to love your enemies. When somebody sins against you, you have to go and talk with them about it. And restore them to fellowship. And forgive them. And I say, you've got to be joking. I want to rip his face off. And you want me to go and be nice to him? And forgive him? And love my enemy? No way. I go back to the story of uh, Gideon again. Can you imagine Gideon has this great army. He's going to go out and fight the enemy. And God said, no, I want you to get rid of all but 300 of these guys. Gideon says, this is suicide. Makes no sense at all. And sometimes we read in the scriptures and sometimes we get a sense in our heart as we're praying and thinking that God wants us to do something that makes no sense whatsoever. I've never been asked to sacrifice one of my kids, but when we got out of college, we had a wonderful job. It was in the Adirondack Mountains. I was the operations manager at a beautiful, large, five-star kind of Bible conference 
beautiful place. They built us a home on the grounds for Jeanette and me to live. We had our own boat on the beautiful lake. It was an idyllic life. We started a little church, and so I had a ministry. Jeanette and I were pastor and wife of this, the church, and it was growing, and people were appreciating it, and, and it was a, really just this beautiful, idyllic life. And one night when we were praying, I said to Jeanette afterward, I said, I, I, I have this sense that God wants us to go to seminary. And I don't know why. And, and we pray about that. And so we prayed and we got the sense, yeah, we're going to leave this beautiful ministry, this wonderful place, this idyllic life, and go to school again? I hated school. We did it. Put our old two little boys in the back seat of this old car with a middle-sized U-Haul trailer, $400 in our pocket, headed for Dallas. No credit cards, no place to live, no job. Made no sense of what I've And everybody we talked to said, you guys are out of your cotton-picking minds. I said, yeah, maybe we are. But we had this deep sense that this is what God wants us to do. And I believe God gives us that deep sense. The psalm that says God will give you the desires of your heart, that may mean he will give you whatever your heart desires, but I think it also means he will give you what your heart should desire. And someplace out of the blue, with this beautiful, wonderful, fun-filled, great, secure life, God said, walk away. Leave this place. Leave those people who are saying, please don't leave us. Our church is growing. We want you to stay. But God said, go. God said to Abraham, I want you to do this thing that makes no sense. It is a test. I want to make sure that you are the real deal. And so we go back to what James said at the beginning that we read. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. See, just before he introduced chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews said, my righteous ones will live by faith. Live by faith. And you say, where do you get this stuff? You guys have a bookstore where I can buy some of that faith stuff? No, Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing the word of God. By hearing the word of Jesus. My friends, if you want to have a faith like Abraham's, if I want to have a faith like Abraham's, I have to spend time reading how God has worked in the past, meditating on lives like Abraham, like Jesus, like Paul, like Peter, like Jacob, like David, and become familiar enough with God, where he is my friend, and he calls me his friend. And responding, when he says something, do it. When you read something, do it. Do it. Build, cultivate this relationship where you so trust your God, your Savior, your Holy Spirit, 
that you say when he speaks, I act.